In this podcast series, we discuss the first-line treatment strategies for the management of locally advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma in Canada. This part of the series is based on a live webinar presented on September 12, 2023 by Dr. Normand Blais from the Chum Cancer Centre in Montreal, Dr. Terence Friedlander from the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, and Dr. Shrikala Shridhar from the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Toronto. The video of the webinar is divided into four episodes which are available on our website, and the link can be found in the episode description. In this third episode taken from the webinar, Dr. Shrikala Shridhar presents a clinical case on the treatment of locally advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma, highlighting the role of infortumab vedotin plus pembrolizumab in the treatment plan. Hope you enjoy it. So here's a case. It's a 75-year-old man who presents, uh, previously healthy, who presents with gross hematuria, which is sort of typical of what we see in this disease. He undergoes a cystoscopy where they see a clear tumor on the right-hand side. He has a TURBT, which confirms muscle invasive bladder cancer. He has CT staging, which shows no evidence of distant metastatic disease, and his clinical staging is a T3N1M0. His past medical history is notable for hypertension, prediabetes, and mild renal dysfunction, a creatinine clearance of 50 mils per minute. Social history, he's an ex-30-pack year smoker and a non-drinker. In March of 2021, he has four cycles of neoadjuvant chemotherapy with split-dose gemcitabine and cisplatin with lapalga. And just a couple comments here. In some of our patients, we find that sometimes splitting the dose of cisplatin over the two days, day one and eight, is a little bit easier to tolerate. And also from the point of view of anti-nausea agents and everything, it's the same on day one and eight. And then since the pandemic, we've been using a lot of lapelga, and that's really kept our hospital admissions down. And very few patients are actually being delayed on the account of counts. In any case, he has a partial response on imaging and TURBT. He tolerates chemotherapy reasonably well, but develops some mild neuropathy. And of course, he has hypertension, prediabetes, which could also be risk factors for this. He undergoes a radical cystectomy and standard pelvic lymph node dissection. And of course, we saw the data recently with standard versus extended, suggesting that standard is probably just as good. And I know many of my urologists switched right away to standard node dissection. And at the time, adjuvant nivolumab was not available in Canada. His follow-up consisted of Q4 monthly scans, blood work, and clinical review. And he remained well in follow-up until January of 2023. At that point, he presented to his family doctor with a cough that was not resolving post-pneumonia. He had some new back pain, slightly decreased energy, decreased appetite, and weight loss. And in general, when we're looking at recurrent disease, it tends to happen in that two to three year time frame after initial diagnosis. CT scan, unfortunately, showed new lung nodules, worrisome for metastases, as well as new pelvic adenopathy and new bony lesions. So he's seen for a discussion of first-line treatment options and the different things we think about, EV plus Pembro. Rechallenged with platinum-based chemotherapy plus or minus abelumab and clinical trials. As I always start there, I always start thinking about clinical trials. In this case, there was none that were available. So, you know, some of the things that I think about when I see a patient like this in clinic, sometimes when a patient has had disease progression on a prior treatment, you think about maybe changing mechanism of action or using a different drug. So this patient has never had prior exposure to either EV or pembrolizumab. His uh, response rate and response rates with this regimen, as we've just heard, are relatively high. In fact, one of the highest that we've seen in this disease at around 65%. That's partial response plus complete response. 
And the other thing I think we don't talk about it enough is this concept of primary progression rate being low. So about 7.9%, which means that in about 8%, both those arms of the study, patients had primary progression as their best response. So that's that's pretty good, which means that 90% of patients had some degree of response. It may not have hit the requirement for partial response, but they had something. And I think that's really important. And as Terry mentioned, all patients receive immunotherapy upfront. PFS at 12 months, about 55%. Overall survival at 12 months, about 82%. So it really suggests that these drugs are having activity. Of course, again, we need to watch for and carefully manage toxicities. The big ones being really neuropathy. And some of these patients have prior risks from prior platinum, hypertension, diabetes, all those things come into play. Rash, I see a lot of dry skin with these drugs. And, and that's, of course, because of nectin expression in the skin. And then things like diabetes. And this can happen in patients who have no prior history of diabetes and never had any issues. So it's important to follow the blood sugars. Again, no head-to-head data against chemotherapy, plus or minus of Alimab just yet. So, you know, we, we also think about the fact that he has had prior exposure to platinum and response rates to platinum is only sort of in the 40 to 50%. And again, only a subset will receive Avalimab. So only the group that has stable disease or better will go on to receive Avalimab. And primary progression rates are higher and there's a real need for a good response in this patient, given that he's having some symptomatic progression, median progression-free survival and overall survival for platinum-based chemotherapy six and nine months respectively. Again, need to watch for neuropathy, as I said. And, you know, I think there's growing comfort with EV. Certainly, we're using it in the third line setting. EV plus Pembro, I think we're sort of working on that. We're, we're hopefully we'll get access to something like that soon. I know in the US, they have approval for cisplatin ineligible patients, and I think that they're using it already. So, in February of 2023, he starts on EV, tolerates the first cycle really well. In the second cycle, however, he begins to notice a rash over his forearms and torso. He uses over-the-counter steroid cream with some relief, but no resolution. He's then started on low-dose steroid at five milligrams per day. And I find this is often helpful, not only for the rash, just generally energy, appetite, those type of things. And he feels better. Uh, his repeat imaging actually shows improvement in all areas of his disease, and he's continuing on treatment to today. So just kind of giving you a sense of where he's at. Cycle three, he reports worsening neuropathy in the hands and feet but admits it had been steadily getting worse. And so I think it's really important that we educate our patients to tell us what's going on. Because I know some patients don't want to tell us because they're afraid they're going to get taken off treatment. And the decision was made to go to one milligram per kilogram weekly. And I think there's some comfort in doing this because from the phase one trials that we did seem so long ago that we did those very exciting early days uh, for this drug, there were responses seen at the one milligram per kilogram dosing level. So Keep that in mind as a way to to deal with some of the toxicity. His neuropathy does not resolve, but stabilizes and he continues on treatment. It is important, as Terry mentioned, to watch for motor neuropathy because I've had one or two patients where that happens. He was referred to neurology for assessment of neuropathy. And I think an interesting thing that Terry mentioned was he sends his patients to ophthalmologists that he knows. I mean, I think it's really important to have people in your circle that you can send your patients to that are familiar with these drugs and familiar with the toxicities. I think we're sort of training everybody to, to, to address some of the toxicities, new toxicities we're seeing this with this drug, but also with things like urdafitinib. We're seeing some of the you know unusual serous retinopathy and things like that. So it's really good to have those specialists around us. He continues on treatment. He feels better. Repeat scans after cycle two and four continue to show improvement in all areas, and he's happy and his family's satisfied as well.